We'll hear argument first this morning in number 95719, William Gasparini versus the Center for Humanities, Inc. Uh, Mr. Abadie, is that the correct pronunciation of your name? Yes, it is, Mr. Chief. You may proceed. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, this case presents the question of whether a federal appellate court sitting in diversity may apply a highly invasive state standard of review to overturn a jury's findings on compensatory damages in the absence of any error at trial and after the district court judge has considered and denied a Rule 59 motion. This court must reverse the Second Circuit's decision for three principal reasons. First, the Second Circuit's decision to apply a state rather than federal standard of review violates the Seventh Amendment, the Rules of Decision Act, and this court's precedent most recently reaffirmed in a unanimous opinion in Browning-Ferris where it was expressly held that in a diversity suit, it is federal and not state law that governs the standard of review. Mr. Abadie, um, I guess you agree that the federal district court had to look to New York substantive law well, the for the cause of action and, and what recovery was allowed. Yes, yes. State law controlled the substantive law which governed the cause of action and the elements that the jury could consider. Has the law in New York been determined to limit tort recovery to amounts that are reasonable? Uh, I understand that that's the case law in New York. Not, not as a matter of substantive law, at least with respect to... Well, why isn't that a matter of substance? Well, at, at least as to... I mean, if, if New York said uh, no tort recovery can exceed $100,000, would that be a substantive yes, requirement? Yes, that would, that would be a substantive... And what if the New York law says it, it has to be reasonable? Is that not a substantive requirement? Not, not if the determination of reasonableness is a judicial determination by a reviewing court, as it is in New York under CPLR 5501C. 5501C is a standard of review. It is not a substantive Okay, but what if it is coupled with New York cases that say it must be reasonable as well, a matter of substantive law? Well, I think the critical issue there is who defines what is reasonable. I think that uh, if, as in this case, it is a reviewing court that is making the determination of what is reasonable. Well, I suppose initially the trial court judge has to review that question and decide it. What is the normal federal appellate court standard of review, do you think? Well, uh, under the Seventh Amendment, uh, a federal appellate court is not permitted to re-examine facts found by a jury. That doesn't answer my question. What is the standard of review? Is it no reasonable juror could have reached the verdict? Or is it, uh, in this case, did they, were, they were looking at a motion for new trial, is it whether the trial court abused uh, its discretion in denying well, the trial? Most of the circuits are, many of the circuits are employing an abusive discretion standard. But the Seventh Amendment does not permit a, fellow, a federal appellate court from exercising review where the claim is that the jury's verdict was excessive. Or Abedi, do you know of any state that does not have a rule that damages must be reasonable? Um, in other words, is, is the New York rule uh, something distinctive about New York law? Well, there is something distinctive about 5501C in New York law. What is that? And that is that under New York law, as articulated by the Court of Appeals, which is the highest court in the state of New York, right. the appellate division is, has the quote-unquote final word. I understand, but that, 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 that is a question of how 
the New York law, rule of law, is enforced. It can be enforced at the appellate level as well as by the trial judge. But as far as the substantive rule of New York law is concerned, namely that damages must be reasonable, is, is that at all distinctive? It no. is my impression that every state has such a, such a rule of law. I think, I, I think and the federal government as well in all causes of action under federal law. Do you know any cause of action in which the damages can be unreasonable? I, I think that the substantive law in most states, um, without knowing it precisely and exactly in every state, I, I presume that the substantive Not willing law, to say all states? I'm sure it is in all states. But, Mr. Abadi, didn't New York specifically change its law for the express purpose of getting a lid on damages? Well, not a lid, and that's, I think, a critical distinction. In 1986, the legislature enacted 5501C um, of the CPLR, which provided an appellate court with the opportunity not to impose a lid, but to make it a determination of what it believed was reasonable compensation and to move the award up or down. And In this very field, what we've seen is a lowering of excessive verdicts. And what's startling to me about this case is going back to guarantee the basic eerie message that you are not to get dramatically different outcomes in state and federal court. That's core eerie. And here you have the possibility of getting verdicts that are uh, widely out of line with what you could hope to get if you went into state court. Well, I mean, I, I think that you're raising an interesting point. Um, the, the eerie analysis that the consorti court, the Second Circuit, engaged in, which was the decision that the Gasparini court relied on, did in fact, under an eerie analysis, indicate that its decision to apply state law was a function of the eerie test. But there is a threshold question that must be addressed before one can proceed to the eerie considerations, and that is, is there a constitutional provision uh, at play here? Mr. Abadie, is this a state-created right? Is what a state-created right? The, the claim in suit is based on state law. That's correct. That's correct. And yet but, you're arguing that because of federal procedure, you can get a remedy in the federal court much larger than you could get in state court on the state-created right? No, what I'm saying is, is that because the Seventh Amendment applies, the Supremacy Clause prevents application of the state standard of review, not the substantive law. The substantive law, which determines the cause of action and which determines the elements that the jury may consider in arriving at their determination, is a function of state law. But the standard of review, as this course held in Browning-Ferris, in Donovan versus Penn Shipping, and in Bird versus Blue Ridge, is a function of fundamental federal policy and the Seventh Abadie, Amendment. The, you never get a chance really to answer Justice O'Connor's question about what is the federal standard of review. Well, the, 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 what I'm saying is where a new trial motion has been based on a claim for excessiveness or weight of the evidence, the Seventh Amendment prevents a federal appellate court from reviewing that determination. Your point is that as a matter of constitutional law, there is no right, the federal appellate court has no power to set aside the... That is correct. The re-examination clause of the Seventh Amendment says specifically no fact... I think fact that's what Browning-Ferris held. Well, I think Browning-Ferris addressed a slightly different issue, but interestingly, Browning-Ferris did indicate that this court has never held expressly that a federal appellate court can exercise review where weight of the evidence and excessiveness is the claim. And in fact, it's been the precedent of this court for more than a century and a half, and, and a precedent that has never been repudiated, that a federal appellate court cannot exercise that type of review. And what precedent is that you're referring to? Um, specifically, the cases begin with Parsons versus Bedford um, up through 
uh, uh, Fairmont Glass. There are dozens of decisions which are collected in our brief on page 35 and foot well, 36. Uh, do they really, uh, what proposition are you citing them for? I know they're collected in your brief, but are you saying that there is simply no possible review of a jury verdict under the Seventh Amendment? Not no possible review. But the Seventh Amendment imposes a division on the review responsibilities of the District Court and the Court of Appeals. The District Court under the Seventh Amendment is entrusted with responsibility for reviewing factual issues and therefore for determining excessiveness and weight of the evidence claims. The Court of Appeals remains available to review and supervise questions of law. But there's so nothing in the Seventh Amendment that says the District Court, the trial court shall do one thing and the appellate court shall do another. Well, I actually think that there is. The Seventh well, Amendment, the, the reexamination clause says, states, no fact found by a jury may be otherwise reexamined than according to the rules of the common law. Seventh Amendment is a very unique amendment. It commands that we must look to the common law for the meaning of the scope of that reexamination. If there was reexamination at common law by appellate courts over excessiveness and weight of the evidence claims, then contemporary American jurisprudence can exercise that. Well, Mr. Abadie, you do agree that at common law there was a group of judges that reviewed the trial court trial jury's findings. But it's important to look at precisely at what that what But that is was. true. There was some form of judicial review. There was judicial review at the trial level. The only way that a new trial motion where excessiveness or weight of the evidence was the claim could be granted was with the authorization of the Nisi Prius judge who was the judge present during the trial proceedings. That judicial review was exercised. But sometimes that review was conducted without the, the, the judge who was present at no, the trial. No, no. Historically and factually incorrect, Justice O'Connor. There is no case, and no case has been cited by respondent, where a new trial motion was granted by the court at Westminster without the express certification of the Nisi Prius judge. There, Let me ask you this. On the federal standard of appellate review, if the Court of Appeals determined that no reasonable juror could have uh, awarded the amount of damages that it awarded at the trial, uh, you say the appellate court could not, based on that determination, upset the verdict? A court of appeals is no reasonable juror could have done it. A court of appeals is not in a position, based on the restrictions of the Seventh Amendment, to exercise that type of review. Mr. Abadie, the district judge is, however, and if you're stressing federal procedure and the Seventh Amendment, and we have a tension here between the award one can get in a state court and federal procedure, isn't the logical answer to say you have to take the state law? but fit it into federal procedure, and that means the district judge has an obligation to do in the federal courts exactly what the appellate division would do in, in the New York State Court. A district court judge is empowered to review that claim for excessiveness and may look to state law for guidance. This there is district no judge wasn't aware that he was to take as his standard for reviewing the verdict what the appellate division would have done in his in a similar case. He certainly didn't indicate any uh, such awareness. I don't think that's necessarily true. The Rule 59 motion was fully briefed by both parties. Arguments were made by both parties before Judge Bryant. Judge Bryant considered the Rule 59 motion. He had a liberal standard that he could employ in deciding that motion. He considered it and he denied it. 
What Judge Bryant recognized, what he must have recognized when he considered that Rule 59 motion, was that this verdict was fully supported by the record at trial. Even respondents' own expert in this case at trial provided testimony. Is there testimony anything to indicate that he compared, as the Second Circuit did, this verdict with the cutdown that the appellate division had done in similar cases? No, because Judge Bryant didn't issue a formal written opinion, but the case was... Well, at least it's possible that he didn't know he had the obligation, in effect, to take the place of the appellate division when he reviewed that verdict for excessiveness. Well, Judge Bryant's a very experienced Article III judge. We don't know exactly what... He might have thought, just as you did, that everything that has to do with judge and jury is federal procedure, never mind the state. We don't... Seventh Amendment, we don't look to see what the state does. He might have thought that. We don't know what he thought because he didn't write anything. Well, that's correct. He might have, but there's no indication that he exercised his discretion and his authority in reviewing the new trial motion improperly. What we have to look to is the record to see if the record actually supports his determination. And when we look to the record in this particular case, what we see is that even Respondent's own expert at trial provided a basis for the valuation that the jury arrived at in this case. Do I understand your argument? Is it your argument that what the Seventh Amendment prohibits is only appellate review? And you concede, it seems to me, in this colloquy with Justice Ginsburg, that the Seventh Amendment does not prevent the trial judge from being more liberal in setting aside a jury verdict than the common law would be, simply because New York decides that judges should be more interventionist than the common law has allowed them to be. No, I don't want to be misunderstood for saying that. Well, I thought that the premise of the question, though, that Justice Ginsburg was asking you, that if New York chooses to allow its judges to be more interventionist than the common law allowed judges to be with regard to jury verdicts, Judge Bryant here must follow New York law, regardless of the Seventh Amendment. Judge Bryant is free to look to New York law to some extent in exercising his discretion. Why? It seems to me he must look to the common law. He is constrained, in fact, by the common law. And the standard of a district court judge in reviewing a Rule 59 motion is a properly deferential standard. There's no general common law here. The common law that is applied is the law of New York State. And suppose New York State court should clarify, this change that our legislature made is, in effect, a soft cap on damages. Not just the general reasonableness that always prevails, but we have, in effect, a soft cap, and we regard it as highly substantive. Suppose that's what New York court... And so I'm not sure, Justice Ginsburg, what your question to me is. My question is, suppose that is the New York law. Then we have your case. So it's clear that New York regards this as a matter of substance, that it is a soft cap instead of being no more than $500 for transparency. It's this standard that the appellate division is to use. New York labels it substantive. Then we're in federal court with your case. What must the trial judge do? Well, I think the determining factor is not how it's labeled, but what, in fact, is the actual nature of a substantive law. If it is, in fact, substantive law, if there is a limit imposed as a matter of state substantive law, that is controlling in a diversity suit. Suppose that that limit required the trial judge and the appellate court 
to look at verdicts in order to make them comparable, including verdicts that have been rendered after the verdict in question. That is to say, if it comes to the Court of Appeals of New York under New York procedure, they look in order to determine comparability at what juries have been doing uh, within a period, a reasonable period of time, both before and after this jury has entered its verdict. That cannot be squared with the reexamination clause of the Seventh Amendment. The Seventh Amendment says that the facts... So, so then you would have a, sev- a substantive standard that could not be implemented in the dis- district court? I, I, the Seventh Amendment requires, I think, that the jury's findings of fact be accorded great deference and that they cannot be altered based on an assessment of what other juries have done in other cases where the parties in this particular proceeding have not been a party to. We use comparable sales all of the time in condemnation suit. Why can't you use comparable verdicts uh, and, 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 and determine whether or not there's a certain amount of uniformity? based on an after-the-fact examination of the verdict? Because the re-examination clause of the Seventh Amendment imposes a powerful and definitive restriction on how a jury's findings of So then there are certain substantive standards that cannot be implemented in the federal system? Uh, not substantive state law standards. The states are free to pass the, 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 In fact, the question I put is very close to, uh, is it Cortini, Corsini? A consorti, I believe. Yes, consorti. In fact, isn't that what the court held in consortium that it was required to do, to look at verdicts, including verdicts yes. that were rendered after the, the date of the verdict? In yes, and I think that's incorrect. It's, it's, uh, let's let's it's assume it's, un- it's correct as a matter of state law. Let's assume it's correct as a matter of state law. But, but not as a matter of state substantive law. The key question here for a federal court sitting in diversity is what is the state substantive law? That applies, and the jury is bound by state substantive law that determines the cause of action. But Mr. Abadie, for eerie purposes, a lot of things that are categorized as sub- procedural in other contexts are substantive for eerie purposes. Yep. Because the idea is you're not supposed to have a different outcome in the federal court on a state-created right. That has constitutional dimensions, too, doesn't yes. it? Yes, Justice Ginsburg. So the statute of limitations, which sometimes is type procedural? But, but Justice Ginsburg, no Erie analysis, no policy analysis under Erie and Hannah versus Plummer can displace a constitutionally mandated allocation of responsibilities between judge, jury, and an appellate court. The rules Mr. Abbott, your position, I take it, would apply equally to punitive damages? Yes. And how do you reconcile it with our decision in Honda that due process required excessiveness review? Do you think we were wrong? No, I think our position is fully consistent with this court's decision in Honda. In Honda, this court held that a provision of the Oregon State Constitution which prevented judicial review violated procedural due process. In this case, there was judicial review at the district court level. There's no constitutional right to an appeal. The court's holding in Honda didn't say that there was a right to appellate review, and how could it be a matter of procedural due process to require appellate review when there's no right to an appeal? Judicial review was exercised in this case by the district court. So the you're you're saying that the appellate jurisdiction of this court is limited by the Seventh Amendment? Yes. The uh, how, so, so that there could not be, as I understand it, if the, if the district judge said uh, the, the motion to set aside is denied, there could not, on your view, be an abuse of discretion review in an appellate court. Not consistent. If, if the standard that we established for, for federal review were no reasonable juror could find, uh, could, could have reached this verdict, would that be reviewable? The only review that is consistent with the Seventh Amendment by a federal appellate court is review that goes to a legal issue. Well, but that's, I think, what I'm getting at, because I would have thought that the abuse of discretion standard 
and review of a rule which pegs the uh, permissible amount to, to or, or limits the permissible amount to what a reasonable jury could have found raised issues of law rather than the kind of issues of fact which the New York rule uh, does issue, uh, it does raise. I mean, I can see the New York rule as being a rule of factual review, but abuse of discretion, no reasonable juror could. Those, I would suppose, were, were, were limits of law, and I think you're telling me that there could not even be appellate review on those uh, grounds. I believe, Justice Souter, that the Seventh Amendment, the reexamination clause of the Seventh Amendment, is saying exactly that. Well, I thought be, the point. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, and because ultimately an abuse of discretion standard would require a federal appellate court to engage in de novo or review of facts found by the jury well, in, but order only, make, in order to make a know, determination. Only in the limited sense, I suppose, that, that we engage or that an appellate court engages in a review of facts on a directed verdict uh, motion. Well, and, again, and they can do that. Again, this this issue. I mean, you, you, they can do that under the Seventh Amendment. And I, I'm not, I don't see the essential difference between doing that and engaging in either of the two avenues of review that I've thrown out as, as hypos here. Well, the key and the command is contained in the reexamination clause. And the reexamination clause... does the reexamination clause speak to punitive damages? Are, aren't you biting off uh, more than you have to chew here? D does any of the cases at common law that you cite involve punitive damages? Some of them do, yes, yes, Justice Scalia. They do involve punitive. Yes, some of them involve exemplary damages. Uh, can you explain a little? I'm, I'm not certain how you... At the district court level, everybody agrees it's up to the jury to decide reasonableness, right? Everybody's agreed on that. Okay, then if New York were to have a law saying and no jury verdict, no, no, no damages will exceed a million dollars, and the jury gave them two million... Everybody agrees that the district judge in a federal case would have to follow New York law, set it aside, over the million. That's a legal question. A, a, district, court. Is a, yeah, a district judge, a district judge, yes, a, and everybody also agrees that if New York is doing the same thing here, the district judge should do the same. So that's a question. Of, if this is a substantive cap, like the million dollars, the district judge should do the same. If there is a state substantive which cap, says that no jury will be no which says that no plaintiff can get more than what materially deviates from what is reasonable. No, I think that, that if that if I believe that that's like saying no plaintiff gets more than a million. I'm, I know there's disagreement on that. But if I were to think you'd lose on that and it is substantive, then you would say that the district judge is supposed to decide whether that's so. Well, I want to be clear that there's a distinction between a state, a authentic state substantive cap, which is binding in diversity action, mm -hmm. and which is actually reviewable by a federal appellate court as a matter of law, not only by the district court judge, but this standard that we're talking about, which requires an appellate court to substitute its judgment for that of the jury, which is not, which may be... I think they made a mistake in thinking that the comparable thing was the federal appellate with the state appellate. If I think that, the comparable thing might have been the district judge with the state appellate. I'm trying to get that out of it. I'm saying, suppose I thought that it's the district court here that should have applied the cap. Then what I want to know, if that's so, what should the review have been in the federal appeals court? It, Why shouldn't it be de novo or abuse of discretion or uh, nothing? What is your view on that? If I understand your, correct, your question correctly, if there is a state substantive cap, and if we assume for the sake of argument that what we're dealing with is actually a state substantive provision, 
say, for example, that the cause of action that under New York law on a particular cause of action a plaintiff is not entitled to more than $200,000 and the jury awards $500,000 and for some reason the district court judge is asleep at the wheel and he lets that verdict go through, a federal appellate court would have as a matter of law review power to overturn that verdict because it is a question of law. The, 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 the reason then that that is not this case is because you think it isn't a soft cap. You think that this state court provision is totally, uh, the state law provision is totally a procedural matter. It, it, on, its, that the, on its face, it is clear that 5501C is a mode of appellate review, and in People v. Bleakley, the highest court in the state of New York, the Court of, of Appeals, has specifically said that 5501C is the provision that gives appellate courts the final word on factual issues. And they describe 5501C as, quote, the linchpin of the constitutional scheme in New York that allows every litigant an opportunity of at least so one for review by the appellate court. It's procedural, not substantive. Absolutely. And that's Mr. Abedin, case, Mr. Abedin, I, I Abedin you're, you're, you're urging upon us very strictly the, uh, uh, the words of the Constitution, but they only apply to review of jury determinations of fact. How is a jury determination concerning punitive damages a determination of fact? Compensatory, I can understand. This person has been injured so much. That's a question of fact. But punitive damages, this person deserves to be punished a certain, to a certain degree. Is that a question of fact? I believe it is a question of fact, yes. Justice Scalia, yes. The law is given to the jury on what, on what punitive damages, what the elements of punitive damages are. Punitive damages is an issue of fact. Yes, Judge Scalia, I believe it is. Mr. Abedin, I'm not sure that I understand the relationship between your answer to Justice Breyer's questions and your answer to mine. You said in his case that if there were in, in a, a kind of a simple dollar cap, nobody gets more than a million. The district judge uh, is asleep at the wheel uh, and does not vacate the, the excessive verdict. The appellate court may do so on review of law. That's correct. Okay, Justice. or may reverse him and remand yes, on review of law. Why may the appellate court not do the same thing on abuse of discretion? That's an issue of law, isn't it? Well, this court has indicated that if there is any standard consistent with the Seventh Amendment, it would be an abuse of discretion standard. Okay, but why, why, why shouldn't your answer then be the same on abuse of discretion as it was to Justice Breyer's question? Well, because I think that the strict, proper, correct reading of the reexamination clause is one that precludes any review by a federal appellate court of issues of fact. All right, but, but my, 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 my premise was, and maybe this is where we disagree, my premise was that review for abuse in effect, is, is, is review for an error of law. You were saying on an abuse of discretion standard, in effect, no reasonable district court could have found this anything but excessive. Well, that's your question, could be reason. And that is, it seems to me, is an issue of law, isn't it? At, at, at best, I believe that an abuse of discretion standard is a mixed question of law and fact, and insofar as it requires an appellate court to engage in a re-examination of the facts. It is inconsistent with the re-examination. Let, let, me, let me go to the other example I tried. Let's assume that the substantive rule in New York is uh, no verdict may exceed the verdict that a, may exceed the range that a reasonable juror would, that a juror, that a reasonable juror would find appropriate. And the, uh, the district judge uh, is asked to, to, uh, to remit or vacate uh, because the, the, the verdict exceeds whatever that, whatever that amount is claimed to be. 
uh, and uh, it, in effect, it's a reasonable juror standard, and the district judge does not do so. And that is appealed. Is your answer the same, that that is really a mixed question, and because it's a mixed question, it cannot be reexamined? Yeah, I think, to the ex- I think the answer to that is yes, Judge. To the extent that that uh, review requires an assessment of the facts found by the jury, it's precluded by the reexamination. So there, the, Seventh the Seventh Amendment precludes any appeal, any litigation of a legal issue on appeal which arises out of a mixed determination, then. That's, that's your rule. I think that any time the appellate court is uh, required to engage in factual review, um, the Seventh Amendment does not permit that. Thank you, Mr. Abedin. Thank you. Mr. Olson, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The Second Circuit in this case performed essentially the same supervisorial function as the, as the courts at Westminster had performed beginning in 1655 under the rules of common law to protect against absorbent judgments. And it performed the supervisorial function required by Erie since 1938. They weren't supervising anybody. They were, unless you say somebody supervises himself, those courts were trial courts. Those, in fact, um, the uh, Blackstone dis- discusses this process in extensive detail in Chapter 24 of Volume 3 of his commentaries. What, what that was was en banc courts setting to review the decision of the trial and the trial court. There was no judgment entered by the trial court. That's judgment correct. was entered by the court at Westminster, and, and, and the closest analog to, uh, to current practice is that of a master. The, the, I submit, Your Honor, that a review en banc by, court, uh, by the court above, ju- um, Blackstone referred... Courts reviewed judgments, Mr. Olson. There was no judgment to review. It, of course, the, the, the entry of the judgment occurred later. In, when, when the uh, Judiciary Act of 1789 was adopted, it's very interesting that the, the new trial motion occurred after the entry of the judgment. The entry of the judgment made no difference. What, what is functionally equivalent to what happened in, by the, in the Second Circuit today is what it was happening in the courts of Westminster at the time uh, that the Constitution was adopted. A review by judge judges, other than the trial judge, of the reasonableness of the jury's But they were, they were not appellate judges. These were all trial judges. They were all nice surprise judges. As, as, as um, Blackstone points out, both in Chapter 23 and Chapter 24 of Volume 23, they were interchangeably trial judges, judges of appeal, and judges who would communicate with one another to perform a supervisorial function. When they were reviewing motions for a new trial, Blackstone makes it very clear that the purpose was to preserve the jury trial itself, because if aberrational judgments, errors in the instruction, errors performed by juries, um, excessive judgments, and so forth could not be corrected, the faith that existed in the jury trial would would vanish, and the jury trial system would go away. I take it that they could uh, order that the trial be, uh, that the case be retried before the group of judges, like all of them are an in-bank. What was done was a retrial um, at the place at which the case was tried initially. Unless the case was tried originally at Westminster, then it could be tried there. the, The same... Essential would, they, would then three judges go out and retry it? Or no, if it was tried originally uh, in a county someplace by one judge, it would be sent back. As, as I understand, that, that's the process that would work. In other words, it is very much functionally equivalent to what we have today. Separate judges, and the trial judge may have been a part of that review, or he may not have been a part of the review. According to your opponent, he was always an indispensable part of the review if it was to be set aside. You do not have a single case in which it was set aside without the recommendation to do 
so by a Nazi, in, in by, fact, by the, the Nazi prize. In fact, as, as Justice Scalia, as you're aware, those decisions are very short, very abbreviated. Some of them refer to the trial judge. Some of them do not refer to the trial judge at all. There is no statement in any of those cases that say that we could not consider the motion to it for a new trial without the Do you have a single judge? case in which it is clear that the Nazi Prius judge did not recommend the setting aside, and yet it was set aside. You have one The case cases are not clear yeah. either way. I think I, that can be answered yes or answer no. That yes I, or I, no. I answer that question yes, but I also say you, that... You, what is that case? I'll write it down. I, I said I don't have a case that an, don't. It answers it clearly. I should have said, um, no, I misunderstood the phrasing of the question. The fact is that if you review those cases, as we have carefully reviewed them, there is no... First of all, Blackstone does not say that it was required a certificate by the tri trial judge to review possible errors made by the trial judge. Blackstone talks about this in terms of supervising possible errors that may have occurred before. It would have meant not been a supervisorial function if the only supervision that could have taken place would have been with the permission of the judge being supervised. Why did Joseph Story think that the appellate judges didn't have this power? And why did we think Just about a century and a half that, uh, that, uh, that the, the remittitore could only be granted? Well, in the first place, the Judiciary Act of 1789 made no distinction whatsoever in terms of which judge or in which function the new trial motion could be considered or granted. In fact, in the section 17 and, 17 and, and section 17 and section 18 of the Judiciary Act, of 1789, it says either judge might approve the going forward of the motion for a new trial. And when it says either judge, which what is what judges are they referring to? There? They're referring to either the they're referring to the circuit judges in that's in section 18. Uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist. Two, where two judges, uh, a circuit judge and a district judge, sat together to try a case. Yes. Yes. Well, of course, but then it's not an appellate court. I mean, all the well, judges in 17 the system that in we, 1789, all of the judges had. Night I fry as functions. They all had trials. I understand that. We did so not give them all that power. We, we, well, the fact is, though, that the, the, the Judiciary Act of 1789 did not say that this had to be done by a trial judge sitting in a trial capacity. It authorized any court of the United States to grant a motion for a new trial. And, and well, surely not a court in which the case hadn't been tried. The, the, or, or, or appeal. I mean, a district court in South Carolina couldn't grant a, dist a new trial in a case tried in Pennsylvania. What the frame? Yeah, that's correct, Chief Justice Rehnquist. What the? What the? In other words, it meant where appropriate. It's no. So but it gets you nowhere. It, it just says every judge can do it where appropriate. And the, the issue is the whether it's appropriate when he's not the trial judge. No, the so decision. The, the decision. words of the 1789 Act get you nowhere. I'm, what I'm saying is it does not in any way refute the process that was going on concurrently at common law where a decision was made by a separate group of en banc judges that an excess of judgment had been rendered and then that decision was uh, that a new trial should be granted was sent back to the place where the case was tried originally or to where the record was returned in the exact words of Blackstone so that what when when this process because we created a different system of courts than, than existed in England at the time, there is going to be some differential in the process. But the, but the substance of the fact is that a re-examination and a grant of a new trial was not, in, in that context, was not considered to be a re-examination which the framers were concerned about. It's fairly clear. Mr. Olson, if we were back in the era of Swift v. Tyson, when there was common law to apply and the federal courts could divine it, you would never be making this kind of argument because the re-examination clause would control. So my question to you is why are you emphasizing the possibility of appellate review instead of saying that this is New York substantive law and fitting it into the federal system, it's the job of the trial judge. 
And that's what went awry here. And the Second Circuit, instead of taking it on itself to do this review, should have instructed the trial judge. That's what the trial judge should have done. Well, I agree with everything that you said, and I was going to discuss the eerie question. Um, what, what, the, what the appellate court clearly did in this case is decide that no reasonable jury could have come to the conclusion. In fact, that is the exact words of the Second Circuit in this case, could have come to the conclusion that the jury did in this case. And it's clear, and, and giving all deference to the decision of the jury, um, and all inferences in favor of the petitioner, that the district judge should have done exactly what you said. And, and, and the, the court in this case granted a new trial, which is exactly the procedure that did exist at common law to correct these kind of errors, um, and then went on to suggest, as permitted under the federal practice, that there could be a, re, um, a remediator which would avoid the new trial in the, in the, at the option of the plaintiff. Mr. Olson, that's contrary to what we've at least said in the past the court's empowered to do. We, we, we said in, in the Freyloff case, a case a lot closer to the, to the framing of the, of the Seventh Amendment than we are today, we, we, we said, if no error of law appearing upon the record, this court cannot reverse the judgment because upon examination of the evidence we may be of the opinion that the jury should have rendered a verdict for a less amount if the jury acted upon a gross mistake of fact or were governed by some improper influence or bias. The remedy therefore rested with the court below under its general power to set aside the verdict. That's very categorical and it says just the opposite of what you're telling well, us. What, what this court said in the Browning-Ferris case is that the Court of Appeals was to review the decision of of the district court to see whether the Court of Appeals came to the conclusion, this is a unanimous decision of this court, six years ago, our only inquiry is whether the Court of Appeals erred in finding that the district court did not abuse its discretion in refusing to grant petitioner's motion for a new trial. Did, did, essence, did that involve compensatory damages? That this case involved punitive, the Browning Ferris case involved punitive it, Am I permitted to think that, uh, that punitive damages do not involve a question of fact, whereas compensatory damages do? I think both types of damages uh, under, the, under the decisions of this court and the decisions of the courts that have considered them and have sanctioned them say that punitive damages and compensatory damages do involve some element of fact-finding and some element of the application of the law to the facts. It's a mixed question of law and facts, especially when, when the question is being reviewed. And what this court said three times... You, you think both are equivalently factual. The question, how much... You know, what value of suffering or injury has this person undergone? You think that is no more factual than the question, how much should this person be punished? I think it is more factual, but we're on a spectrum here. Blackstone talks in terms of, when it talks about the, the, the private right, rights and private wrongs versus public rights and public wrongs, as talking about punitive damages to the extent that he was examining that subject in a, in a context of a public wrong and a public remedy. So Blackstone, at least, was considering that there was a public societal interest in the amount of punitive damages. And of course, this case does not involve that subject, but I do think that there are different you have state, you're, you're having a state impose a penalty for what's perceived as antisocial conduct in the context of punitive damages, and there may be more strict uh, judicial review. It's not at all a question of fact. Pardon me? It doesn't seem to me at all a question of fact. Well, one of the, How much somebody should be punished? In, in, in this, ca this court's decision in Pacific Mutual versus Hazlitt, the court said that appropriate considerations may be given both by the jury and the, and the judge and the trial court and the, appell and the appellate courts of how much other punishment existed, what was the degree of the egregiousness of the wrong, and things of that nature. I'm, t I'm tempted very much to agree that it's a purely legal question, but I think I have to concede, to be honest, that there are factual elements wrapped up 
up in it under this court's jurisprudence. But if you have a, a negligence action, uh, diversity tried in federal court, and uh, jury returns a verdict for the, for the plaintiff, the district judge refused to set it aside, grant a motion for new trial, appeal to the court of appeals. The court of appeals is of the view that no reasonable juror could have found that the defendant was negligent in this case. Can it, can it reverse the judgment? I believe it can. I, I believe Without violating the Seventh Amendment? Yes, I believe it can. The, this Court has said over and over that the Seventh Amendment was not intended to enact the forms of practice or the procedures that existed at common law. This Court has said that it is the substance of what was taking place at common law. And I, I suppose you would say that uh, the, the substance of the common law and of the law today is that there is a large element of law in a damage award. That is to say, you can consider reputation in the community or you can't. You can consider pain and suffering or you can't. I, I totally agree with that. In fact, that's exactly what the New York substantively decided. New York could have said no case shall be um, in, in a certain uh, for, for, for photography shall recover more than $100,000. But the legislature obviously felt that that was not an appropriate thing to do for every different types of a- type of action. So, so where does the standard abuse of discretion come from? Uh, I, I, I think everybody, if it's procedural, material deviation from reasonableness, if it's procedural, drops out, you lose. If it's substantive, then Erie uh, takes over, and I guess like any other legal matter, the district court applies it. Then we review the district court's decision. What's the standard there? I take it you're saying the standard is, where, where did this abuse of discretion idea come from? Oh, well, I, I'm not sure exactly where it came from, but I... Wh- What's but the standard? If it is a legal matter, a legal cap, district judge applies it, like any other legal matter, appellate court reviews it, by what standard? It's, it's not. It's, it's just a straight legal question. Well, of course it is, if that's, if, if that's the characterization that you accept of what is going on here. I think... But if I, that isn't the characterization, then it's procedural. No, I believe that there's a, it's a mixed question of fact and law that's taking place here. A mixed question is like any other mixed question on the legal part, uh, probably, but not always. Well, but what, what, what was very clearly going on here in New York was that New York wanted to change its substantive law. It changed its substantive law it, uh, in, in these procedural amendments to change rules like joint and civil liability and other things and imposed this kind of comparable limitation on the amount of damages and did exactly as you were suggesting in your question, ask the court, and Justice Kennedy's question, ask the court to look at other verdicts to make sure that judgments are not going to be out of whack, that they're not going to be excessive, that they're reasonably consistent with judgments in other cases. Um, in this particular case, Judge Briant might not have thought he was supposed to apply the standard of New York, and the appellate court did it for him. I guess that would be wrong. They should send it back. Is, is that right? I, no, I think what the appellate, I, I think it is possible to assume, it's possible to assume anything with respect to what the district judge did here because he didn't say anything about what he was doing, although it's clear that he did say on the record that he felt that $1,500 per slide was not something that was possible. He said no sane person or words to that effect would accept that kind of characterization. So he was concerned about it, but then when it came to granting the motion for a new trial, he did nothing. He just he just denied the motion for a new trial. It's clear that in the review of that, the Court of Appeals felt that that was an abuse of discretion. Mr. Olson, you, 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 you describe the history as though it's all or nothing at all, that, 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 that the factual question of whether $1,500 is an excessive jury judgment is either reviewable in, uh, by, by the appellate court or not. Whereas the historical record suggests that it may be reviewable in some contexts, namely in the context of whether the judgment can stand, whether there, whether there was liability, but not reviewable in the other con- in another context. That is, in the context of whether the damages are excessive. It, it isn't an all or nothing at all that a particular factual question is either 
reviewable by the appellate court or not. What well, common law seems to show is that it was reviewable for some purposes, but not reviewable for purposes of determining whether damages were. The common law is very clear that the supervisorial function by the court above was to be considered in a matter of the sound discretion, that's the words of Blackstone, of the court above. He did acknowledge, and it's understandable that the trial judge would have been consulted with respect to a new, whether the new trial would be granted, because we did not have records in those days like we do today. Considering the in-bank court, the court above. And I, I just, that's what he said. Those, those are the words he said. Now, what could be more similar to what happened here than to that process, a separate en banc court reviewing the procedures that had occurred out in, out in the countryside to determine whether there was an excessive verdict and the exercise of the sound discretion of that court to determine whether there's an aberration. Mr. Olson, I could understand your argument better if we were a unitary system as was England with one law. But that has to be, that system has to be put together with a federal system. That was, that was wholly out of the picture in the common law model that you're following. Well, and you seem to be saying what you're arguing today would hold as much in an FELA case as it would in a diversity case. Well, certainly, I, I don't, I'm, I'm not personally familiar, I think, with the court's jurisprudence on FELA cases and whether, how, the extent to which the Seventh Amendment would impact that decision. There has been extraordinary deference to jury verdicts in FELA cases. Well, I'm, I, what I'm saying is that, that, that the answer to your question depends upon whether we're talking about Erie or the Seventh Amendment. The Seventh Amendment, to the extent that it adopted the rules of common law, did not constitutionalize a standard of review. The standard of review was in the discretion of the court above. Now, it may well be that this court and the courts of the United States chose to implement that in many respects as a, uh, an abuse of discretion standard, and there is some support for that in Blackstone, because naturally... May I ask you a question about whether you, do you concede that the words common law in the Seventh Amendment refer to the common law of England at a particular time? Or is it possible, let's say there was a different rule in the state of New York in 1790, so they even let legislatures sometimes re-examine verdicts and at that, that time in our history. Which, which would be the source of law? I think the better view is, um, as, as cited in both of the briefs and cited by Petitioner, that Justice Story articulated that it was the federal common law to which the framers of the Constitution were referring. The federal common law? I mean, the, uh, excuse me, the English common law, rather than the law, the common, the, as this court has pointed out, and particularly in Galloway, the common law was, and, and Hamilton writes about this in, in Federalist 81 and 82 and 83, that the common law in each particular state differed. In four states, there was an automatic right to a, to a, a second trial. In fact, you would have two, trials until you got two out of three. It didn't differ, Mr. Olson. Some states were wrong. That's the way the 18th century mind would have regarded it. There was a common law, and some states had it wrong. Well, part that? of the common law, Justice Scalia, in fact, I'm glad that you made that point, part of the common law was, and that part of the reverence that we had for the common law and the framers had for the common law was the fact that it, it, it was a continuing evolutionary process by which justice would be done. And, in fact, it would be very anomalous, and this Court has said it, for the framers of the Constitution to have locked in a particular mode of procedure or forms of practice. Well, but wasn't it, wasn't it assumed, and haven't we consistently assumed, that if there, was, if there was no clear exemplification in American practice of what the common law rule was, that the default rule was English common law in 1791. Isn't that the default position? Yes. And to that extent, there, there is a locking in. Well, it, a locking in, but a locking in to the, what this court has said as the elemental 
principles of the jury trial, the fundamental basics of the jury trial, not the forms of procedure. This court has said that over and over again when it's upheld a sixth jury trial, when it's upheld JNOVs, when it's upheld direct verdicts, when it's upheld partial summary judgments. The first part of the Seventh Amendment. Yes, in the first part of the Seventh Amendment, which which uh, which uh, simply uh, says you'll you'll have trial by jury. And what constitutes that, you can make additions and subtractions. But the second part of it is so unusual. It says, shall not be examined other than according to the rules of the common law. This, that means you can't add or take away. That is, the first half of it doesn't suggest when, that you can't add or take away. When this court has considered things like uh, JNOV, partial new trials, the court has re- been referring to the re-examination clause and not the first part of the... Of, and this court has never said that its jurisprudence with respect to taking the, the spirit of the trial by jury as, and, and not the forms of practice and procedure that existed in 1791 applied only to the first half of the, the Seventh Amendment but not somehow to the second, seventh, second half of the Seventh Amendment. It would have made no sense. In fact, the forms of procedure by which jury trial results were examined wasn't dependent upon any particular practice or procedure. As Blackstone makes it clear, the idea of the new trial was for the purpose of the preservation of the jury trial itself and for the purpose of preserving the confidence that the people would have in this most elegant, as he puts it, the the new trial, the motion for a new trial eliminates these inconveniences which could occur as a result of errors or excesses and at the same time the motion for a new trial preserves entire and renders perfect that most excellent method of decision, which is the glory of the English law. How, how, does, how does that bear on the, the language then according to the rules of common law? This, this was the rules. The rules well, of, that doesn't sound like the rule of common law. It sounds like perhaps a reason for why they had some rules of common law. It, 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 it suggests exactly why there were new trials. The, 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 the concern that the framers had with respect to the examination clause was the civil law procedure where another court would review a decision of a court, a decision tried by a jury, and then that court would either constitute another jury or create well, another jury, and it would be ser- a series that, of... That, that may be a concern that led them to adopt the second part of the Seventh Amendment, but we go by what they said, and what they said was then according to the rules of common law. And I'm suggesting there's no better chronicle of the rules of common law that existed at that time than Blackstone's commentaries written in 1768, and he describes the rules of common law. Well, I'm sure, as I'm sure that that may be very valuable, and perhaps that's governing. But we don't need all his hype about how great it all is. Well, the, fa- the reason the reason that I mention that is that Blackstone had a reason for putting that hype in chapter, as you put it, in chapter 24. He believed. Not that the new trial was something that was terrible or something to be avoided or something that was an inroad on the trial by jury, but in fact it was an important component of the jury trial that there would be these retrials. The issue is whether he believed it was action by an appellate court or not, and I believe he said that once and elsewhere he suggests the opposite. That's really the issue. We have no doubt that he approved it and thought it was excellent. And he thought the question is whether he thought... The, the, the issue is whether he thought that was action by an appellate or and whether he was correct in thinking that that was action by an appellate court as opposed to action by the trial court. He felt, he felt first, and this is the most important point of all, is that he felt that a rehearing before another jury, to use his words, was as little prejudice to either party as if it had never been heard before. He felt that the instrument or the instrumentality of the new trial was a valuable means of protecting the system. 
As to whether or not, not he thought, he never said that he thought it was important that it was the trial court. The tri- the, what the petitioner is arguing for in this case is that the trial judge have the power, standing alone, to determine whether there would be a new trial or not. That system never existed at the common law. And what existed at the common law was a review en banc by separate judges that would exercise... There's reasons why he uses the word supervisorial. May, may I just detract you from that for a moment and ask the kind of question that Justice Scalia asked Mr. Abadie? I think you're biting off more than you need to here. And do you at least have as a second, as an alternate position, that even if what, your, uh, what Mr. Abadie has argued is right for a federally created claim, this is an eerie matter. And therefore, the federal court simply can't give awards that you couldn't get in the state court across the street. I I agree with that. And this court said it best, it seems to me, in the Guarantee Trust case, where it said the intent of the Erie decision was to ensure that all cases of federal court in diversity jurisdiction, the outcome of the litigation in the federal court should be substantially the same as far as... Well, what if if it's it's demonstrable statistically that juries always give higher verdicts than judges would. Does that mean that the Seventh Amendment becomes a dead letter if, if, if a state decides that, uh, that it is going to allow its judges always to come up with a damage it would, it, would, it would, under no circumstances, um, change or make the Seventh Amendment a dead letter unless the judges were given the power to substitute their judgment for, the, for that of the jury with respect to the amount of damages. But, but they are, but they are. As a, I mean... The, the very existence of the Seventh Amendment, if the states don't have it, will lead you to a, a difference between the, the, the amount of money you're going to get in a, in a federal court that, that has a jury trial by, by right Unless, and, and that, a state court. I don't believe that that's correct, Justice Scalia, um, based upon um, what happened in this case. This is, the, this is an example of a supervisorial function that will send the case back to a new jury unless the petitioner accepts the amount that the judge said was the maximum amount that Suppose the, the state abolishes award. the jury. Pardon me? Suppose the state abolishes the jury and says we're going to have no more juries. The Seventh Amendment right. would not tolerate that. And this court has well, said... But we've never held the Seventh Amendment applies to the states. States oh, abolish the I mean, jury. I'm, I'm talking in terms okay. of... I'm assuming that the now, that Justice Scalia... Would, would the federal court have to abolish the jury? No. It, it couldn't abolish the jury, could it? No. And you get vastly different results, don't you believe? You get well, vastly different results if you have the federal state, uh, courts in the state sitting with juries and the state courts sitting without juries. Where would you bring your lawsuit as a place? It's an entire possible... And, and, and do you think that Erie permits that? It's, what the court has said is that to the extent the legal rules can determine the outcome, that the differential in the federal court should not be different than the state court here we have a substantive decision by New York exercising its legislative function that in actions for recovery of damages, there ought to be some limitation, some equality. Are, so, are you arguing that you're not re-examining a question of fact that's tried that by are, a jury, but that you are re-examining a mixed question of law and fact? Exactly. And that the grant of a, a new trial in the first instance is not a re-examination, and Blackstone did not consider that, and he said that in so many words. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Olson. The case is submitted. We'll hear argument.